Section 7. Personal Recollections of Early Melbourne and Victoria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Lucy Burgoyne. Personal Recollections of Early Melbourne and Victoria by William Westgarth. Section 7. Some Names of Mark in the Early Years. Some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. Twelfth Night. Before endeavouring to give a sketch of our early society and its ways and means, I am fain to pick out a few prominent persons as they flitted before me at the time and have stuck to my recollection since. Although they might not all have been in an equal degree interesting, good or great in themselves, they were yet men of mark, closely associated in various ways with our early colonial life, and, like a busy dentist, much in the mouth of their public. By all right and reason, the first of these prominent personages is the Brotherhood Group of the Messrs. Henty. The Henty Family and the Foundation of Victoria Let the end try the man. Second part, Henry the Fourth. Great world, Victoria brings thee meat and corn and wine, with richly veined woods and glittering gold from mine, fairy web of silken thread, soft thick snowy fleece, wide room for smiling homes of industry and peace. Mrs. H. N. Baker. The founder of today's great colony of Victoria was Mr. Edward Henty, who landed at Portland Bay from Launceston, with livestock and stores, for the purpose of settlement on the 19th of November, 1834. But in regard to that notable event, I prefer to speak of the Henty family, because, in their colonizing efforts, they seem to have acted so much with mutual family purpose and in mutual help, and because there was a preparatory work in which the family were all more or less engaged, all leading up to this settlement at Portland, a site which had been selected after more than two years of previous adventurous excursions and observations along the coasts of western Victoria and of South Australia. The successful settlement of the noble Port Phillip Harbour the following year by Batman and Faulkner caused such general attention and such a tide of colonisation that remote Portland was comparatively overlooked. For many years, therefore, much less was heard of the Henties than of those who had merely followed their steps. In fact, there can be but little doubt that these latter were first aroused to the colonizing of the vast areas, the all but terra incognita, across the straits by the vigorous example set by the Henty family, almost from the moment of their arrival in Launceston in 1831, 
and by the reports which they brought back from time to time of the lands of promise they were opening to public notice in south-eastern Australia. But now that rail and telegraph have virtually abolished distance and familiarised the central colonists with the value and beauty of the earliest occupied western areas, the Australia Felix of Mitchell, the Messrs. Henty's position has passed more to the front, and their priority being universally acknowledged. I was not personally very intimate with any of the Henty family, otherwise I might have had more to say in this sketch. But I have met most of the brothers repeatedly, and frequently I met James, the Melbourne merchant, who was the eldest, and also William, the lawyer and ex-premier of Tasmania a most amiable and gentlemanly man, who latterly resided at home where he died, and who often attended the lectures and discussions at the Royal Colonial Institute of London. Both of these brothers were rather grave and quiet, while Edward and Stephen were energetic and lively even beyond most colonists. Francis, now the only survivor of the large family, I met only once, about forty-three years ago, in the western district. He was then a handsome and rather slim young man, not of the henty mould, which was rather of the full John Bull kind, as Punch gives him, minus the obesity. But if I may credit the Melbourne illustrateds, in a recent likeness of the last of Victorian founders, he must have consented, in later life, to drop more into the family mould. They were a family of eight sons and one daughter. Seven of the sons emigrated with their father. They were all men of mark, above average in mind and physique, men of a presence, who would have been prominent in any society, altogether in numbers, in appearance, in circumstances, and in events, quite a remarkable family. As I am not writing for history, so as to study completeness in my account, but only of personal observation and recollections, I shall not do more than give a very slight sketch of the emigratory particulars of this family, and my excuse is that these data are so far personal as having been told me direct by one or other of the family. The story is striking, and our descendants may look back with surpassing interest to the Romulus and Remus of a future Rome which, in the possibilities of modern progress, may exceed that of the past. The father, Mr. Thomas Henty, of Sussex, England, took the resolution to emigrate, with his family, to the Swan River, as the present Western Australia was then called. In 1829 he sent his eldest and two younger sons there, with suitable servants and supplies, intending to follow with the rest. These pioneers declared against the Swan, and advised their father to go to Launceston instead, 
to which place they themselves also went. Arrived all there in 1831, a new disappointment awaited the family. No grant of land could be had, as in the case of the Swan, where they had 84,000 acres. This grant system had been abolished only a fortnight before their arrival. They had now to rent their farms, and the prospects, therefore, were discouraging. They were unable even to effect an exchange for their Swan River grant. This disappointment led to a search, begun in 1832, under the lead of Edward, the second son, who twice traversed the seas between Portland and Spencer Gulf, examining the aspect and promise of the country. The result was always in favour of Portland, where he landed on one occasion, confirming all impressions by actual inspection ashore. He therefore resolved on a settlement here. In his second expedition he took his father with him, as the latter had expressed the wish to see for himself the Swan River, grant before finally abandoning it. The party, having reached the Swan, found that what they had got was sand, not land, and so it was finally given up. Edward, who was the prime adventurer of the party, now got ready to settle at Portland Bay. He chartered a small schooner, the Thistle, loading her with stores and livestock, and with selections of seed, fruit trees, vegetables, etc., part of them bought from Faulkner, who had then a market garden on Windmill Hill, near Launceston, besides keeping the Cornwall Hotel there, and with these he sailed in October 1834. In two days they were within twenty-five miles of their destination, when a storm drove them back to King's Island. Six times successively they were thus driven back, losing a good many of their livestock, and it was only after thirty-four days that they effected their landing. The work of colonization begun at once. The thistle returned to Launceston for fresh supplies and additional colonists, and returned this second time with Francis Henty, the youngest of the family, who landed at Portland on 13th December, within twenty-four days of his brother. Edward was then twenty-four years of age, and his brother only eighteen. This is the brief but momentous story of the founding of Victoria. Mr. Francis Henty has given a most amusing account of the meeting between his party and that of Major, afterwards Sir Thomas Mitchell, who, in exploring Australia Felix in 1836, came in great surprise upon the Henty settlement at Portland. The story reads now like the highest romance of adventurous exploration. The Mitchell intruders, five in number, were at once regarded as bushrangers, and a defence promptly organised. The firearms were limited to an old musket, 
which was loaded to the very muzzle, to be ready for a grand discharge. Then, as to the Mitchell party, even after they were relieved of their first fears, for they too had taken the others to be no better than they should be, they exercised a measure of reserve, as though doubtful of their new friend's respectability. Mutual suspicions, however, being at last dismissed, the travellers were supplied with the stores they much wanted, and in return they gave such a favourable account of the pastures of the Wannon Valley as to induce Mr. Edward Henty subsequently to remove a part of the flocks there, and to establish the homestead where, as I have already stated, I enjoyed in my western Victorian travels the squatting hospitalities. Let me add just one more incident of the Henty family, one personal to myself, but in quite a different direction from the above. Once on a special occasion I met the banker, Charles, who had stuck to his profession at Launceston. Instead of adventuring across the straits with his brothers, besides his quiet banking vocation, he was, I think, the portliest of the family, which may be the explanation. The occasion was a public dinner to the Anti-Transportation League delegation, sent from Melbourne in 1852, to stir up the cause at the Van Diemen's Land fountainhead of the common evil, and of which delegation my lately deceased old friend Lachlan McKinnon and myself were regarded as the heads. McKinnon, like many another such vigorous Highlander, as he then was, could never take a subject of deep interest to himself quietly. We had had a sample of him already at Hobart, where the feeling as to our mission was by no means clear, both from the natural touchiness of convict connection or descent, and from that still considerable section of colonial employers and traders who thought that the ledger and its profit and loss account had at least an equal right to be heard in the question as any other so-called higher interest. The ground, slippery enough at Hobart, was supposed to be still more treacherous at Launceston. Had not Edward Wilson, of the thoroughly McKinnonized Melbourne Argus, been but a little before nearly mobbed by the furious anti-antis of this place, to his utter surprise and astonishment at his own importance, and being only saved, in life or limb, perhaps, by old Jock Sinclair, who was timely on the spot, and who dexterously led him, by a roundabout, to safety within the departing steamer for Melbourne. In short, a row was more than half expected from the McKinnon speech, and as this was undesirable, for good reasons to all sides of Launceston society, Mr. Henty resolved to prevent it, and did so most successfully by a very adroit but not unworthy trick. He took occasion to speak just before the McKinnon avalanche was to come on. 
introducing McKinnon and commending his straightforward honesty in this matter, and so on. He said that some such people could not take even a good cause in moderation, but that these defects, if he might so call them, were more easily seen than remedied, and that all kindly consideration must be made in the case. I fear I am not literal as to the identical words, although I heard them, but I have given the pulpit. Paul McKinnon, as he afterwards laughingly pleaded, what could he do under the cold douche of such a wet blanket? He made the smallest and quietest speech of his life upon a great and stirring subject. End of section 7